according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 3. Checking the noise status on my phone. Looks like I'm on silent. All right. Philippians chapter 3. Looking at Paul's qualifications and... uh, What an awesome guy he was. As far as everything human is concerned, he outdid everybody. And uh, was very pleased with that until he said, you know what, throw it all away. And that's what we're looking at here tonight. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight, once again, thankful for your faithfulness, thank, thankful for our, our country and the freedom we have in our country. We thank you for uh, 242 years of, uh, of independence and all of the grace blessings you've poured forth. Father, we uh, just give you the praise and glory. We know we haven't earned it, we haven't deserved it, and it could all end tomorrow, Father. But as of tonight, we have the freedom to assemble or not, and uh, we're here tonight to, to study to show ourselves approved. So thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, microphone runner is ready to go. Who wants to have our first question tonight? Tell you what, I'll give you our first two questions if you want to go first. As far as that goes, all of our, okay, we'll come up here to the front row. Our usual suspects are not here today, so. Right, okay. When um, the children of Israel were told by God that they weren't going into the land but would die in the wilderness, mm-hmm. um, then in just the next chapter, God starts giving detailed instructions all over again about offerings. It just seemed like an incongruous jump from you're all going to die mm-hmm. to here's how you worship me. And I'm not sure it's really a question. It just seemed like a, a big jump. Talk about in Kadesh Barnea, like in Numbers chapter 11? or No, where they were finally told you're... Oh, after the rebellion, after the the Levites had to be shown that Aaron was the the, the true, high, true high priest and mm-hmm. that these Levites weren't priests. Right. And then this was apparently where God finally got totally fed up, at least in our terms, and, um, and said, you're all going to die in the wilderness. And then that ends that chapter, and he jumps right into detailed instructions for offerings. That's interesting, yeah. But you don't know the passage? The Deuteronomy, maybe? I don't know. Well, let's see if we can find it real quick. Die wilderness. Exodus, Numbers, 1 Kings, Isaiah. Um... Numbers, maybe. Numbers 2665, and then the law of the inheritance in chapter 27. That's probably what you're thinking about. So among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. And then we cross into chapter 27 and 
You get the daughters of Zelophehad and other aspects on inheritance. Is that what you're talking about? No, I guess not. No? Okay. I'll probably have to save this for the next time. All right. Well, if you come across it, just drop yourself a note and we'll, yeah. we'll look at it. it. It was not tormenting me, but just it was interesting the way it suddenly jumped from one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks. Other questions this evening? I, everybody gets one question tonight, mandatory. That's, that's your penalty for being here. <laughs> oh, that's your privilege for being here. That's, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. We had a, uh, a curious thing this morning too, by the way. Have you ever heard of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood? The C-M-B, whatever it's called. You ever heard of that? Ever heard of complementarianism? You ever heard of that? Okay, it got real popular in the early 90s, really took off in the mid-90s, and, and honestly, it started off great. I think its origin was, was well-founded, I think its purpose early was, uh, was good, it just went off the rails very quickly after that. So um, very popular among Baptists, very popular among uh, evangelicals, and it was an attempt to uh, show the gender roles between men and women and uh, to not apologize for having marriage between a man and a woman and to uh, stand for biblical marriage and to have appropriate gender roles. Problem is it took about 10 years and the whole thing was, was stolen. The whole thing was just, the organization just went downhill and uh, it, it's now totally sold out to the feminist movement. And that's why now they just fired a, a, a seminary president and the whole Southern Baptist Convention is on the verge of, of exploding, I think, because of, because of that. So... Uh, if you're not familiar with it, um, I'll show you a website and just let you know. Uh, just be on your guard because they they do spend a lot of work telling you that the Bible doesn't say what it says. And you know, as soon as they start doing that, how are they any different than the the homosexuals that they're dealing with or some of the other things? Here we go. Um, complementarianism. It's cbmw.org is the website. The Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And, and the thing is, is they get on Fox News, they get a lot of media attention, and some of what they do is, is excellent. They, they're the authors of the 2017 Nashville Statement. Excellent. I signed my name on the statement. I can, I can sign every article of faith on that statement. And that's a biblical defense of marriage. And that is, yes, God designed marriage between one man and one woman. And so if you want to go to cbmw.org sometime tomorrow and then read the, uh, the 2017 Nashville Statement, you'll love it. You'll love every article there and you'll say, that's perfect, that's great. But then when you drill down deeper into what they do with heterosexual marriage and with man and woman in Christ... It is scary how they redefine the scriptures. And women don't submit to husbands, husbands submit to their wives. They've got it upside down and backwards, all in the name of, uh, yeah, it's, it's just it's terrible. So uh, keep an eye on that. I'm going to be watching more and more news stories and as these things unfold. But the one, the one thing that they do, and here's where they damage the scriptures, and I'll show you right here, it's in Ephesians 5, and uh, verses 21 and 22. Because Ephesians 5.22 says, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. That seems pretty clear until they tell you, well, it doesn't really mean that. It doesn't mean that because if you back up one verse, you'll see it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so they say marriage is supposed to be reciprocal. The husband is subject to the wife. The wife is subject to the husband. It goes both directions. 
And the woman can't properly be subject to her husband unless he first is subject to her because he's the leader and she responds. So she's not accountable for submitting until he submits. And then she can respond to his submission with her own submission. That's the, that's the lie. Okay? And even verse 21 does not belong with verse 22. Verse 21 is the uh, conclusion to how do churches operate together when we are, like it says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Is that a marriage context or a local church context? That's a local church context. That's how we minister to one another in the Word of God, in our singing, in our prayers, in our love. And it says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that mutual reciprocal sub- subjection is in the, in the flock. That's every member of the flock who's subject to every other member of the flock as we love one another and serve one another and as we operate as a flock. It's not, a, and then it takes that concept of submission then and takes it to the marriage application where it is not reciprocal. Where it is, wives be subject to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, uh, and so there's a hinge there between verse 21 and verse 22 where we're taking the mutual reciprocal subjection of a flock, of a, of a body of believers in a lampstand in a local church where it is legitimate and then crossing into marriage. But this is not what the feminists are doing. The feminists are taking verse 21 ripping it out of the local church paragraph and shoving it into the marriage paragraph and demanding that husbands are subject to their wives before their wife can be in subjection to their husband. So that's where that's gone off the rails. And it is spreading. Dennis Rainey, a focus on the family, the whole marriage weekend things and all that is filled with this stuff. So just be, uh, have, have, yes. So have some discernment in the things you're listening to and, and the things you're reading. You had a question on that? Oh, you found the passage. Okay, well then we can get off of this topic and go back to where you were. Where was that? Okay, in Numbers 14, uh-huh. where Israel uh, rebels, uh-huh. God tells them their doom. Right. And then they try to go into the land anyway. Right. And they, they fail. Mm-hmm. And then in the next chapter, right after God has told them that they're not going into the land, he tells them when you get into the land. Uh-huh. And I don't know if I... I'm taking it wrong, but it seemed to me like he was kind of rubbing it in. <laughs> Probably so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you're not going into the land, but when your children enter the land, yeah. And, and at the end of the chapter two, I mean, they tried, I mean, they were just wrong coming and going. You know, it's like in Corinth when they were wrong for not throwing the man out and then wrong for not bringing him back. Uh, the, the Exodus generation was wrong for not going into the land and then trying to do it anyway after God told them they couldn't. And so um, they just compound the issue there. And uh, I don't know, I've always thought it was a grace kind of a thing that even though he just disciplined the nation, he uses the next message as an opportunity to say, it's not forever. You will come into the land, and when you come into the land, here's what's going to happen. And so it's, I wouldn't say it's rubbing it in, but it's, I think it's kind of a gracious thing to say, yes, you're under discipline, but it's not eternal, and there is a, yeah, your kids will get in that when you don't, right. Right. So, yeah, I would view that as a as a grace thing rather than a. Uh huh. Well, there you go. I oh, appreciate that. All right. Any other questions tonight?
I know we're starting late, but I don't mind. Otherwise, we'll just get to Philippians 3. Thank you for running the microphone. You did a good job with that. That's excellent. Not as good as the regular guy, but... All right, so we are dealing with Paul's statements of perfection because he, uh, he was the most eligible boaster uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, is it, what's the old Texas expression they use at the museum, the Bob Bullock Museum? It's not, it's not bragging if it's true, right? Well, a lot of what Paul said here was flat out true. I mean, the things he was boasting about, uh, all of his requirements, all of his qualifications, no one could dispute it. So when he said, uh, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, all of that's true. Of the, as to the law, a Pharisee, which says everything that needs to be said right there. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And uh, that kind of says everything that needs to say right there. As to the uh, righteousness which is in the law found blameless. And that word blameless is uh, where we end verses 1 through 6 here. We end this first development and there's a significant aspect as to this blameless. And that's where we ran out of time and what I want to pick up tonight and then we can wrap it all up tonight and then be ready for um, the profit and loss statement on Sunday. We'll move on to verses 7 through 11. Um, but as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Well, that's, that's ideal, isn't it? Don't we all want to be blameless? Well, Scripture doesn't say, be thou blameless because I am blameless. It says, be thou holy for I am holy. And then it says, you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so although the Father is at work to present us blameless, Blameless is not the goal. Blameless is almost like the fringe benefit. It's almost like the side effect. Uh, the real goal is perfection. And uh, so there is a distinction to be found between uh, blameless and perfect. And that's what I want to talk about here tonight. So uh, let's get past what we've already covered here in terms of circumcised on the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. And I want to do more on that. I think we'll do more... Um, maybe in Ephesians or Colossians. We're going to do more on that because we've got um, this aspect here in the church age where we're neither male nor female, we're neither Jew nor Gentile, and so racial distinctions are irrelevant in the body of Christ. However, even though they're irrelevant in the body of Christ, they still exist as realities in secular life, in, in the temporal world. And so in the tribulation, of course, there are people from every tribe, tongue, nation uh, that are going to be persecuted, they're going to be saved, and things that we deal with in, uh, in the book of Revelation. And these terms, where you have a nation, that's a political entity, where you have a tribe, that's uh, an ethnic identity, and then you have a language, that's your culture right there. Your politics, your, your tribe, or your people group, your, your ethnicity, and your, and your language. That's your, that's your, uh, your culture. And uh, I think you, you end up with a, a Trinitarian expression or a tripod expression, a threefold expression uh, that, that uh, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing and Satan hates all of it. Satan, of course, has been hating nationalism ever since the Tower of Babel. Satan has been uh, trying to you know, recreate a global language or a global government or, or uh, to blend the, uh, the races or the ethnicities to the point that they lose their distinctiveness. 
to try to replace nationalism with globalism as the overall objective, and he's been doing that since Babel. And so uh, different aspects there. I think these these studies uh, need to be expanded upon. I'm looking forward to that because we deal with a lot of things today in our culture with respect to this. And you think about people groups that no longer have a nation. You know, they call themselves the nation, the Cherokee nation, the Navajo nation, all these nations, but they don't, they're not political entities with sovereignty over territory. They've lost their land sovereignty. And so if they exist within another culture, it is only in the permissive will of that dominant culture that they continue to exist as such. So anyway, uh, those three things, just stay tuned. I think we'll, ha- we'll have more on that coming up. Uh, as far as the nation, the tribe, and the language goes, we've talked about those points. As to the law of Pharisee, and I can't tell you uh, how, how great these guys were in their founding, what geniuses they were, how faithful to the text they were. Um, you have to read Josephus and you have to read Maccabees, you have to read the intertestamental history to understand this, but uh, the Pharisees were the good guys originally. The Pharisees stood up and said, stop what you're doing, this is not biblical. <laughs> because uh, the Maccabean family, the Hasmoneans, were claiming a throne and calling themselves king when they were Levites, they were priests. They had no business with the throne, they had no business with the scepter. Biblically speaking, the scepter belonged to the tribe of Judah, precisely the throne belonged to the line of David. And, that, uh, and the Pharisees were the groups that were faithful to the truth and, uh, and stood for the Word of God. And so in their founding, the Pharisees were amazing. And it's, it is uh, somewhat unfortunate that, biblically speaking, the only exposure we have to the Pharisees is the New Testament, is the Gospels. And by the time we read about them in the life of Christ, in, the, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Pharisees are largely um, arrogant and and and, uh, and and terrible. So anyway, I would just encourage you if you want to do more of those readings, that uh, Josephus and Maccabees would be uh, would be good places to turn for that. But uh, I, I'm calling this the pinnacle of self-made sanctimony. That's my label. That's my term. Uh, the pinnacle of self-made sanctimony. And when you uh, when you look upon all that you have made and you are very pleased, right? Like the Lord God looked upon all He had made and behold it was very good and so He was well pleased. Well, that's what these Pharisees are doing with respect to themselves, that we have made ourselves uh, these great people. You know, greater we. And you can read in Luke 18, you can, it just, it's coming across in his prayer life. What a great guy he is. And all of his Thanksgiving prayers are thanking God for him being for, for the Pharisee being so great. All right, you remember this in Luke 18? And so here he is in his prayer life, better than everybody else. And uh, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And uh, I imagine the Pharisee wonders why the tax collector is even wasting his time. You know, why bother going to the temple to pray? You're a loser. You're a tax collector. You're a traitor. You're compromising. You're, you're working with a Roman government against the Jewish nation. And the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, uh, that is in his heart, to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And so here he is celebrating himself. This is, uh, that's what a Pharisee is all about. And really, 
This guy's going to be very pleased with himself until he encounters a Pharisee that fasts three times a week or a Pharisee that fasts four times a week. You know, there's always someone that can outdo you in your, uh, in your legalism. Um, you know, get to where you're fasting seven days a week and I'll be impressed and you can, uh, you can do that for, uh, for a year and then I'll really be impressed. Anyway, the point is self-made sanctimony. When it comes to zeal, he says he's a persecutor of the church as if that's all that needs to be said. And uh, it expresses the pinnacle of self-made acrimony. And this is the, uh, the hostility that comes in. And uh, not only am I better than everybody else, but those other folks are the enemy and I need to be hostile towards them. You see why that's a, a progression? Uh, it's one thing to be prideful about how great you are, but then to, to take upon yourself the mantle of, of zeal, the mantle of vengeance, as if it's not sufficient for you to be the best, all these other people um, have to face your, your wrath, your consequences. And uh, the pinnacle of self-made acrimony. And that's, that's curious to me too. And we see something similar in uh, church splits and fights and things where people aren't content to just merely you know, leave in a huff. They want to take 20 people with them. And they want to, they want to hurt the people that aren't going to go with them. And there's other ugliness that happens there. And so uh, you can imagine where you are a murderer and yet you think you're a murderer in the service of God as John 16, 2 says, they will make you outcasts in the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And so it's divine sanctioned murder as far as you're concerned, but um, you know, it's, it's just upside down and backwards. It's woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And, and you're so filled with your, your blind zeal that you don't realize that you've got it upside down and backwards. And you're committing, I mean, here's, you're, you're worshiping the God of truth and the God of life, and you think that murdering these people is gonna, is gonna please him, or that's what God wants you to do. And, uh, and it just, it puts everything backwards. And I think that's what we're dealing with in our culture today. I think, uh, in the name of love, they're, they're championing causes that have nothing to do with agape love. But they do so supposedly in the name of love. As, uh, as they turn things upside down there. And then as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. And so I labeled this the pinnacle of self-made testimony. That the, 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 the fact is the test, our self-testimony is a waste of time. Uh, whatever we want to say about ourselves um, is a waste of time. When we stand before the Bema seat it's going to be God who either says, well done, good and faithful servant, or who says, you wicked, lazy slave. All right? The evaluation comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from us. All judgment's been given to the Son. And uh, for our self-made testimony or whatever, we've been working hard to foster a reputation and, uh, and we're able to maintain that reputation, that blameless reputation. Then um, what have we really done? And why do we think that it counts for anything in, uh, when all is said and done? All right? And so these things are interesting. This, uh, this principle also has an illustration in Luke 18, uh, not with respect to the, the Pharisee and his prayers, uh, but with respect to the rich young ruler who felt that he had done everything necessary, that he is blameless, and uh, he deserves heaven. 
A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And right that question right there, I think, uh, should have alerted this guy that he has a problem with definitions <laughs> and, uh, and things. But then he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And uh, like a checklist, here's this uh, ruler saying, I'm in good shape, I've done it all. All these things I've kept from my youth. And so there you have it. And so when Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack. you know. And it's just hilarious to me. I hope this is on video. I want to see the look on this guy's face when Jesus drops the hammer. I mean, he just lays it out there because you're, you're so close. You're so close. There's only one thing left. Do this one last item and you will earn heaven. See? Give away all your money. Sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He knew that he couldn't do it. He knew that, that Jesus had spotted something. He had exposed his hard attitude with respect to uh, his wealth. And uh, it comes a teaching opportunity. He's able to expand upon that with his disciples there in verses 24 and 25 and, and deal with that. But the, uh, the point is, if you think you've uh, earned it, if you think you've deserved it, um, you haven't. None of us have. None of us measures up. And if, if we're just simply better at hiding our things than other people, <laughs> you know, because we're blameless because no one can prove you know, I mean, even under law, you could be guilty, but if without two or three witnesses, you're, you're fine. As far as that goes, if only one person knows about your sin, you're still blameless in, uh, in the Mosaic Law uh, application. So anyway, this is uh, the thing there. And I wanted to get that all on one slide so you could see sanctimony, acrimony, testimony in, uh, in a single view like that. Anyway, um, that's where Paul was. And, uh, and of course, if you are full of self-righteousness and you're better than everybody else, uh, what are you really? You're really on Satan's fast track and, and you're lining yourself up for divine discipline quicker than anything. Because God is opposed to the proud, He gives grace to the humble. And all these people that are so convinced that they are the best uh, religious people ever are like that crowd we saw this morning saying, Lord, Lord, at the, at the great white throne judgment, uh, wondering why they've been in hell for the last 2,000 years. You know, that's, uh, that's the, the ugliness of, uh, of this kind of arrogance. Now, what I want to deal with here tonight are these aspects, and we'll see how long it takes us. Um, understand, blameless is not the same as perfected. Blameless is not perfected. And blameless, while it is promised, and while there is, uh, we want to remain blameless, uh, it is a means not to an end, but it's not the end. Does that make sense? We want to keep ourselves blameless. We want to keep ourselves unstained by the world. We want to keep ourselves, we want to operate in a good conscience. In all that we do, blameless is good. I'm not saying blameless is bad. But I am saying, what I think the Scriptures are saying, is that blameless is not perfected. The goal is perfected. The, the, the growth process is perfected. Jesus was blameless in the manger, but he couldn't go to the cross in the manger, right? We would be dealing with this in Hebrews. So let's remind ourselves of these things, and then we'll cover points one, two, and three, and, uh, and we'll be done for the night. But remember this in Hebrews 5, 
blameless is not perfected. Jesus was perfected and He had to be perfected. So Hebrews 5, 8, 9, where He talks about how He learned obedience through the things which He suffered. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And He was perfect. He was blameless. But having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. And so it was necessary. It was necessary to perfect the author of their salvation with sufferings. These are all principles that we've had before. We've had this going back to chapter 2 even, where it was necessary to perfect the author of their salvation with sufferings. And so these, um, yeah, that's way back into uh, chapter 2, where these things, uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 10 It was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. And so this perfection process is vital to the plan of God. And I think uh, once we wrap our minds around that and get a a, a firm grip on that, I think we're going to go good places uh, after that, because because the uh, the idea of being sinless and perfect that he's without sin that he's the lamb without spot or blemish that he's he's blameless all of that is true, and all of that qualified him to be the sacrifice, which he could have done you know at birth he could have done in the manger he could have done as a twelve year old instead of going to the temple he could have gone to the cross, and he could have been sinless and blameless and a sacrifice at that young age. But he could not have gone to the cross as the priest to be the offerer, to be the sanctifier, to be the justifier. You understand? Am I making sense? All right. I'm, I'm just seeing blank faces. All right. So, um, and if it helps to, to draw it out and just, you know, put two things like that, what does it require to be the sacrifice? And what does it take to be the priest? Because he was both. He was both. Okay? And, and I think that gets lost. He was both. He was the sacrifice, but he was also the priest ministering the sacrifice. He was the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And he had to have a gift to offer, so he offered himself. And uh, this is everything that we're learning here in Hebrews. Well, the idea of being blameless comes on this side of the equation. Being sinless and blameless. That's why I say he could have done this in the manger. He could have done this as a little kid. He could have done this as a 12-year-old. He could have done this any time in the first 30 years of his life. Instead of going to to the River Jordan to be baptized, he could have gone and died on the cross. But he, he, he could have been, he was qualified to be the sacrifice. He was not yet qualified to be the priest offering that sacrifice. Not until his sufferings. Okay? Because this required him to be perfected through sufferings. And that's the aha moment that a lot of people had Sunday morning when I heard an audible gasp in the room and a, oh, okay. Because the only thing I think a lot of folks think about is this thing over here. That he's sinless, he's blameless, he's perfect. He's qualified to be our substitute, he's qualified to be the offering. And all of that is true. But there's a bigger picture as well, or an additional picture as well. What qualified him to be the high priest? What qualified him to minister that offering? And that was 
perfecting the author through his sufferings. And that's, that's wonderful because then that now starts to uh, address our sufferings. That starts to address our perfecting process as we go through the perfecting process. And uh, it's the Father's good pleasure to not only have us blameless with Him in heaven, but to have us perfected through sufferings with Him in heaven. This is what suits us to be the bride suitable to His Son, the helpmate suitable to Jesus Christ. And so when we can identify His sufferings and, and what that suited Him in His priesthood, then we can embrace our own sufferings and how that uh, suits us in, uh, in our priesthood. So, um, so having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is so vital that uh, I'm glad we're in Hebrews and going through it. All right, chapter 7, verses 11 and 19. More perfection. Hebrews seven eleven. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? In other words, if, if law could perfect, we don't need a New Testament. We don't need a new priesthood. We don't need Jesus to go to the cross. If the law could do it, that's, uh, that would be the plan. The fact is, law can't do it. And so it was never the plan. The plan was always for Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the Lamb of God slain since before the foundation of the world. Uh, Hebrews 7.19, the law made nothing perfect. And yet Paul could say as to the righteousness which was found in the law, blameless. So you can make a blameless claim as a law keeper, but you can't make a perfect claim as a law keeper because the law makes no one perfect. Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not only was He made perfect, but he's now dedicated to perfecting us. Having been made perfect himself, he now is the perfecter. And he's perfecting you and me as we uh, run with endurance the race that's set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And by the time we get to heaven, it's what we're dealing with in verse 23. Uh, we come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Not blameless, made perfect. And so uh, what, a, uh, what a blessing there. So blameless is not perfected. Remember, Satan was blameless until he fell. Blameless is not the goal. Blameless is a means to the end. We want to keep ourselves blameless while we're being perfected. Because uh, obviously carnality in the mix is going to wreck everything. Ezekiel 28. And it's curious to me that his title is the sealer of perfection. We talked about this, gave it to him as a proper name. Um, I forget now, Kohen Tachenoth or something like that. Um, in... Uh, Ezekiel 28.12 Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection or you were the sealer of perfection. This was his either a proper name 
or a title or his office or his function. Um, a lot to speculate on and consider with respect to this. But the person who has the seal is the person that uses the seal. It's the person that stamps approved, right? That uh, stamps the fruit of the loom underwear and says inspected by inspector 45 or whatever. And uh, here, here he is with the perfection seal. And he's looking around. He wants to stamp something as perfect. <laughs> All right. And uh, sadly, he was the greatest thing he could see. It was himself in his pride. So you were the sealer of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And we just, we described, this is Satan, this is the dragon before he fell. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. There is no zoological animal that meets this description, but this is uh, clearly, before he falls, this is uh, a glorious thing of this, uh, of this unfallen dragon. You were the Messiah cherub who covers, and I placed you there. And so it's curious to me, he, he, is a, he has a, an anointed title as Messiah, he is a cherub, he has this seal of perfection, and he covers. That's a verb for guarding, right? And it's curious to me what Satan was expected to do uh, before he fell, what Adam was expected to do before he fell, Adam was told, he was put in the Garden of Eden, he was told to guard it. Failed in that respect. And so I placed you there, you were on the holy mountain of God, you walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways. So there it is. He's blameless, but not perfected. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. You see, legalism only goes so far. And as soon as you're caught, you're caught. <laughs> you know, a Blamelessness only goes so far until you're blamed, until an accusation comes down and the witnesses confirm, yes, he did this. Then where are you? Okay, you can't stamp yourself perfect now, can you? By the abundance of your trade. And so, Clearly, this is not a human being. The people that try to say, well, this was the king of Tyre, this was a human being, or whatever, whatever. It is just so insane. This creature was not born, this creature was created. And this creature was created blameless until he fell. And so the only human being this can describe would be Adam, right? Adam and Eve were the only ones created blameless and then fell. But Adam and Eve didn't have sockets and gold and stones and, and all of that. So uh, anyway, to me it's as plain as, as anything that this is Satan before he fell. And then uh, the description. By the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Always starting with the mental attitude, the internal thinking, the internal attitude, and then actions that uh, he took in response to that. So therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He loses his possession, his uh, place on the holy mountain. 
He can still go to the courtroom. He can still file legal briefs. He can still file accusations. He has access to the judicial function, but not the priestly function. He is permanently banned. And when he defiled these courts, it uh, required Jesus to come and, and cleanse these courts, uh, which we're going to learn about in Hebrews chapter 9. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Plural. Plural. Okay? I think he was the high priest. I think uh, his, uh, the gems on his body uh, line up with the Levitical ethod. I think uh, it speaks to him in his priestly capacity. I think he was a prophet, priest, and king as the Messiah cherub. Uh, I think that he had access. I think the plural sanctuaries is the biggest clue that he not only could go into the outer court, he could go into the inner court. That he had access to the holy place and the holy of holies. And he defiled them both by reason of his, uh, in the unrighteousness of his trade. He's the first money changer. And uh, of course, years later, when Jesus sees this on earth, he goes berserk. <laughs> you know, Jesus flipped a wig and flipped some tables and grabbed a whip and started driving things over. And, and, and it's rather out of character for him and most other stories when you read the life of Christ. It kind of stands out as unusual, but I think there's a reason for it. I think it's because this is the backdrop uh, in thinking of, uh, of Satan in the original fall. So therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you, it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And this too is interesting in in the sense that in all legal court proceedings everything must be publicly witnessed and publicly viewed. God has to be seen as righteous in all that he does. All right. so Satan, the sealer of perfection, was blameless until he fell. And uh, so if, if you're uh, living a life of legalism and thriving in the, in the boast of blamelessness, uh, keep it up. <laughs> all right? But that's exhausting. That's exhausting because you have to keep it up all day, every day, every day. And then when you fall, you lose the status of blameless. And, and really, that's not the route to perfection anyway. What's the route to perfection? Is the route to perfection not sinning? Or is the route to perfection being saved by grace through faith and letting God do the work? Say, God who is at work in you, God who began a good work in you will do what? Perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So perfection is God's work on our behalf. Perfection is the better things concerning salvation concerning you. Perfection is what, we, what He is pleased to do in and through us now. Um, teaching us obedience through the things that we suffer, perfecting us for our Melchizedek priesthood function. Even as our Savior was suited to be a merciful and faithful high priest, we are being suited to be merciful and faithful priests in all these things. So we have Matthew 5, 48, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Galatians 3, 3, Philippians 1, 6, and 3, 12 through 15, so that's coming up. And then uh, Colossians 2, 10 through 12. Understand perfection is God's work on our behalf. We're never going to have self-made sanctimony, acrimony, or testimony because none of us are self-made anything, right? 
God does the work. He did all the work to save us and He's doing all the work to perfect us. He's doing all the work to take us from the cross to the crown to present us before Himself with full reward. This is God at work. So when it says, be holy for I am holy, is there a lot of pressure in that imperative? Or does it get easier when we know God's the one that does this? I think that helps. The final verse of Matthew chapter 5 And it's uh, a conclusion to all these other things. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them the shirt off your back, um, love your neighbor, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Okay, now this is not about how, how we get saved, but this is how we let Him work through us. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I love that. To me that's great. Uh, but, if I th- but if I think it's up to me, ooh, now I don't think it's so great. If it's my human effort that's going to make that happen, then give up now. Okay? It's game over already. I know that's not going to happen if it's up to me. You are to be, how about if we translate this, you are to be perfected. Oh, I like that better. Made perfect. God doing the perfect work in and through me. I have to double check that, see if linguistically you can render it that way. All right, 2 Corinthians 7 1. Again, if, if this is up to me, I'm in trouble. Chapter 6 talks about come out from among them and be separate. And uh, I will be a father to you. You will be sons to me. Sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting. Again, I look at this and I say, wow, is this up to me? Do I have to do this? Is this my human effort that's going to make this happen? Or is this going to be the consequence then of my sanctification from chapter 6? If I'm confessing my sins, if, I'm, if he's cleansing me from all unrighteousness, if I'm associating myself with other brothers and sisters growing in the Word of God instead of associating with Belial and demons and unbelievers and, and all this stuff. Okay, If I'm going to surround myself with darkness, I'm in trouble. But if I come out from among them and be separate, if I surround myself with, uh, with believers with the fear of the Lord, growing in grace and knowledge, well then here we go. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so, yeah, I think this is, uh, this is an encouraging text as well. That it's not my effort, it's not my human ability. I'm not going to make this happen, but I'm going to let God do the work and then it will happen. All right, so that's uh, 2 Corinthians 7 1. And I hope that makes sense. How about Galatians 3 3? Remember this? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This one thing I want to find out from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How was it you got saved? Did you earn it and deserve it? Did you do it yourself, human effort? Or is it by grace through faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, the question answers itself. We can't perfect ourselves through, you know, human effort, through the flesh, through any kind of self-help routine, through any kind of self-improvement program. We're going to be perfected like we were saved. By grace through faith. God's work in and through us. God doing the work. Perfection is God's work on our behalf. Did you suffer so many things in vain? See, perfection comes through suffering. All right. So we dealt with that in uh, Galatians. Philippians 1 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, did you save yourself? Are you going to perfect yourself? The answer is no both times. God saved me, God's perfected me. And God saving me is simply the beginning of a good work. Perfecting me is the bulk of it. (laughs) All right, And, uh, you know, saving me, that was a moment, that was a point of time in September of 1973. And, uh, yeah, 45 years later, he's still perfecting. God does the work. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Once we talk about his profit and loss statement in 7 through 11, then we're going to move to the onward and upward paragraph of of 12 and following. Um, And this is where he says, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. So no one claims that we're there yet. But I press on. I press on. And uh, this is the whole point is we're, we're looking forward, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, pressing on towards the prize. And this is, again, I think the being perfected translation works well in verse 15. Let us therefore as many as are being perfected have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. So God's doing the work, not us. Finally, Colossians 2. And this was a text that Kevin was asking about last week and one that he was surprised we didn't uh, deal with earlier because it talks about circumcision. Colossians 2, 10 through 12. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And I think one of the fundamental elementary uh, elementary principles of the world is you work for it, you get it, you you produce what you can produce. Make yourself what you can make yourself. It's an elementary principle. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. There's the perfection, but it's in Christ. And He is the head over all rule and authority. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. 
And so just like each of, each of these passages we're looking at, we're seeing God doing the work and we're reaping the benefit. We reap the benefit as we simply are persuaded and respond by faith. We accept by faith what it is He's providing. And so again, perfection is a work, God's work on our behalf. He began it, He's going to finish it. The idea that He began it and needs our help to, to finish it, that uh, He makes a promise and then it's up to us to somehow uh, bail God out and, and help God to make good on His promises, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, that's rather blasphemous. <laughs> The God who made the promises is the God that keeps the promises. That's what sets him apart from all those posers that are calling themselves, uh, you know, gods or uh, the guy that vowed to be like the Most High God. They can't do what God does. All right, perfection is God's work on our behalf, and so here we are. And since we're still here, we're still a work in progress. God is still working through us, and uh, we shouldn't claim that we've arrived. If we're as perfect as we're ever going to be, then He'll take us home. There's no other reason to leave us here. And that's, uh, that's that. All right. So Sunday when we come back, we will um, take a look at verse 12. We will uh, start working on our profit and loss statement. We have uh, things that are gain and things that are loss. I'm sorry, verse, not 12, verse 7, 7 through 11. Uh, we'll talk about those things that were gain and those things that, that we count as loss. And then we talk about gaining Christ. And um, this too is, uh, I think, a remarkable uh, study because to know Him, to attain to the resurrection from the dead is the, uh, is the conclusion of this paragraph. Verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is a present hope, not a future hope. He's not hoping to be raised when He physically dies and goes to heaven. He, he wants to attain to a living resurrection right here, right now. And uh, that's going uh, to be a good study. I'll enjoy that. All right? Any questions? Comments? Financial donations? Jewish Pharisees in a Sanhedrin kind of a thing? No, they're gone. Dog. Yeah. There are very legalistic Jewish people, though. <laughs> like they're very legalistic Gentile people, and they uh, they are there is a modern day equivalent uh, Sanhedrin, and uh, they're ready to, to institute uh, authority, and they've uh, they're ready to build a new temple, and that's uh, that's they say they are. Anybody with the last name of Cohen, you know, anybody C O H E N, anybody with the last name Cohen. We had a defense secretary named William Cohen at one point. Yeah, or Levin, Levine, yeah. Uh, those are Jewish names that speak of the priesthood or speak of the Levite status. So uh, Mark Levine, the great one. Uh, who knows? All right. Thank you, Father, for this night. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the perfection. And I pray, Father, as we study these passages and as we observe the perfection process that we would give you the praise and glory that we would uh, pray without ceasing and everything, give thanks and, uh, and worship you during the, uh, the obedience that we learn through our sufferings. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.